And we begin our present sermon series, I Am, back on February 7th, where we introduce God's name, which will be known forever, I Am. Of course, that came out of the discussion that God had with Moses on Mount Horeb, the mountain of God in the Midianite wilderness, where Moses asked God, if I go to the people of Israel and I lead them out of Egypt and they are to ask me, what's your name? What am I going to tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. When God says, I am who I am, he calls us to objective truth. He puts an end to the notion that everybody's view of God is as good as everyone else's. God is who he is, and no opinion of him makes any difference. Therefore, our calling in life as created beings is to strive to know God for who God is, not for who we would like God to be. Now, in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John, we find numerous self-descriptions of Jesus all using the name I am of God forever. The statement I am in our English language is the present tense of be. In other words, what is described by I am is something that is happening at the present moment and continuing on. When Jesus is saying I am, he's claiming to be God, period. He's not saying I will be God or I may be God, or I might be God, or I could be God, or I should be God, or I want to be God. He's saying, I am God. This is my name forever. And what this means is that each of Jesus' descriptions about I am is the Lord's own messaging of himself. In John's gospel, there are seven self-descriptive accounts of Jesus detailing specific aspects of himself as a member of the Godhead. In week one, we learned that he's the bread of life. Week two, we learned that he's the light of the world. Last week, we learned that Jesus is the gate. The access to God comes through no one else and no other way than through the gate, through Jesus. Today, we're looking at the fourth I am statement, which is one of the most beautiful portrayals of God's love, care, and protection of his children. I am the good shepherd. And good means intrinsically good. That's holistic. It's beautiful. It's fair. It describes for us which is that which is ideal and is an example for everybody to follow. And you know the Lord's goodness is inherent in his nature. To call Jesus good is to call him good. God. Do you remember in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, where the one man fell on his knees before Jesus and he said to him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answered, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is the good shepherd. And the teaching of John chapter 10, verses 11 through 21, describes in great detail how the good shepherd lovingly cares for his sheep. Now, this concept of divine shepherding goes all the way back into the Old Testament. Abraham started out tending the flocks, and he was the father of many nations. Israel and Jacob and the 12 sons of the tribes of Israel were all known for shepherding their flocks and becoming this nation, one of the nations that Abraham was the father of. Moses was tending sheep when God placed a call upon his life to go and lead the nation of Israel. David also was tending the sheep when God had him anointed to be the next king of Israel. 
Psalm 23 happens to be as well, the famous shepherd's psalm. It reveals the personal relationship that believers have with the Lord, the one who leads our lives. The Lord is my shepherd. And some of the most heartwarming things in my life are when someone uses the personal possessive pronoun my in introducing me. Like my wife, when she's introducing me to someone I don't know, she says, this is my husband. Or when one of my children do that, uh, introducing me to someone, they'll say, this is my dad or this is my father. Or or my brother-in-laws will do that. This is my brother-in-law. And it used to be that I was introduced as a son-in-law, but that doesn't happen anymore because uh, neither of my in-laws are alive anymore. Some say, this is my pastor or this is my coach. And just last Sunday afternoon, right here in the multi-ministry center at Don Gordon's Celebration of Life gathering, I was visiting with a young lady that I know here in the community, and I didn't know that she happened to be Don's niece. Well, she had also gone to a private school in Duluth, and I didn't know that, and her favorite teacher and coach happened to be there. And we didn't know the connections that all three of us knew each other, but didn't know that we were all connected. And this young lady almost fell over. She was shocked when I mentioned to her that her favorite teacher and her favorite coach was the best man in mine and Cindy's wedding. That's the power of that possessive pronoun, my, the Lord is my shepherd. Well, Jeremiah 23, verses one through three, three, speak of the gathering of the nation of Israel as a flock of sheep that has been scattered. And verse six there tells us that Judah is going to be saved. And who's gonna do the saving? His name, the Lord our righteous Savior. Ezekiel 34 continues this concept of the divine shepherd. When the Lord is speaking to Israel through the prophet Ezekiel, as a shepherd looks after his own scattered flock when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down. The New Testament continues this motif. Luke chapter 15, we're very familiar with that parable. The parable of the hundred sheep, one of them gets lost. Shepherd goes out and finds it, carries it back over his shoulders, and all of his peers rejoice because this one lost sheep has been found. Of course, the story is there's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. And here in John chapter 10, we have the account of the good shepherd. And at the end of the gospel of John, uh, Jesus reinstates Peter on the seashore there, doesn't he? And three times he says something to him because Peter had denied him three times, but what does he tell him each time? Feed my sheep. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, we have the amazing benediction to the letter of Hebrews. And Jesus is referred to there in that benediction as the great shepherd. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, that great shepherd, shepherd of the sheep. So right now, Jesus is my shepherd. He's the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. But this doesn't give the complete picture. He's also the chief shepherd, which means that he's above all other shepherds. And it also means that there's a future component to this. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, where Peter's instructing the elders, the, the pastors, the shepherds in these churches throughout Asia Minor on how to lead people. And here's what he says. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that are under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, 
but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now, someone may ask today, how can Jesus be the gate for the sheep and the shepherd at the same time? Well, remember, there were no doors or gates in the sheep pens, so the shepherd would become that. Verse 11 here again, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep. I think we might even have a slide of one artist's rendering of a shepherd being the door or the gate, but they also would lay in front of that to keep the sheep in and keep the predators out. And what's unique here is that shepherds certainly risked their lives for the sheep, but they usually didn't die for them. If they were skilled, they could protect the sheep. With their slings and stones, they would carry a knife with them usually. They had shepherd staffs and shepherd hooks. They could usually protect the sheep without being harmed themselves. The sheep, on the other hand, of course, were raised for their wool. They were also raised to be consumed by people, and they were raised to be sacrificed for others, in particular, even the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. This is why John actually begins the gospel with Jesus coming to be baptized in John chapter 1, verse 29, and John the Baptist announcing, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, Jesus is called one of the sheep. He's the Lamb of God. He's called one of the flock. And humanly speaking, sheep are prone to wander. To some shepherds, they say that sheep are dumb as dirt. They can find a hole in the fence to get out, but they're not smart enough to find the same hole in the fence to get back in. Just like people. People are dumb enough to get themselves into all kinds of trouble, but not smart enough to get themselves out. And sheep will follow other sheep to uh, countless places, sometimes in danger, sometimes right over a cliff, just like people will follow their peers to do some of the dumbest things that they would never do if they were on their own. Jesus being one of the sheep signifies that he's fully human, but he was different. He wasn't one of the dumb sheep. He was the unblemished lamb of God. He was the sinless lamb who takes away uh, the sin of the world. And the fact that he was a lamb, yes, it does emphasize his humanity, his, his alliance with us. But the fact that he's a good shepherd emphasizes his deity. Verses 12 and 13. The hired hand is not the shepherd, and does not own the sheep. So when he sees a wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's, hire, he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The hireling flees because he doesn't own the sheep. He has no vested interest. He basically says, they don't pay me enough to risk my life like this. It's just not worth it. I'm out of here. But the shepherd stays because he's purchased the sheep. They are his. And Jesus purchased us with his precious blood. John 15, verse 13 says, no greater love is anyone than this than would lay down their life for a friend. Now the contrast here is, is from one who gives all they have to purchase the sheep compared to someone who's simply on the payroll. Who is going to care the most? Now if you've ever rented a home before or an apartment you know you're not real motivated to fix something when it breaks down. And I know it's the landlord's responsibility and you can contact the landlord and sometimes the landlord will even ask, can you fix that? You know, I'll knock a few bucks off your rent or go charge it over here and could you do that? But you're not really motivated to do that. You know, our church used to have a parsonage 
for over 70 years. My family lived in the parsonage, the last pastor and family to live there, and we lived there for four and a half years. But you know what I've discovered over those years? 29 years of home ownership versus four and a half years of living in a parsonage, it's a whole lot easier to get motivated for what I own to take care of my own place. In fact, we have three projects planned to do this next spring and summer at our house. Way more easy to care for our own home than it ever was to care for a parsonage. Verses 14 and 15 continue. I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and the sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I lay down my life, and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. You know, this knowledge is more than intellectual awareness. It's personal. It speaks of the intimate relationship that Jesus has with his sheep. You know, how do you feel when you travel somewhere out of your normal home range here and people actually know your name? It always, it's always special, isn't it? It makes us feel like we are somebody. You know, an Eastern shepherd in Jesus' time knew his sheep personally by name. He would, know, he, he would know how to meet their needs because he knew each of them personally. Last week we read chapter 10, verse 3, when the shepherd went into the sheepfold pen, these community pens would call his sheep out by name and they would come to him. You know, when Jesus called each of his disciples, he called them by name. Same with Zacchaeus when he called him down from the sycamore tree or Mary in the garden outside of the empty tomb. He called each person in those accounts by name. And we live in a world where it's easy to have our identities lost in a maze of computer operations. Uh, how often do you interact with people in a business or in a healthcare facility and they're staring at a computer? You know, asking you questions and they're staring right at the screen. Uh, and it's really impersonal, isn't it? Not even looking at you. And then everyone is wearing masks and they're behind plexiglass and uh, you almost have to yell to communicate with them and many times you have to repeat yourself especially in medical care you know you repeat the same information over and over again last spring right before i was to have my brain surgery i had 3 days where i had to go to the hospital and the clinics and have all kinds of tests being done and every single time and sometimes it was multiple tests in a day and i was in the same building and you'd have to go to this you know, check-in counter or this check-in counter, and they ask you the same questions. Is this your name? Is this your address? Is this your date of birth? Is this your insurance company? I mean, ad nauseum, over and over again. And then I had to step on the scale so many times each of those days. So I just thought, you know what? I'm gonna play a little wrestler trick on these people because nobody's paying attention. There's, it's so impersonal. And when wrestlers were struggling to make weight, if the referee isn't looking, they'll slide their toes off the scale just a little bit so it'll change their weight. Well, I decided, you know what? They're weighing me and they're doing all this and nobody's paying attention to this. I slid my foot right off the scale, stood on the ground like that. And my weight changed 15 to 20 pounds in the same day and from day to day. And you're not supposed to have surgery if you have that kind of fluctuation. And, and nobody was, was checking. It's just this assembly line that was going on. And finally, one of the last nurses, right before I'm going to have surgery in my morning check-in that day, wants to, do you want to know what your weight is? You know, because it's in kilograms. Would you like to know what it is in pounds? I said, no, if it doesn't matter to you, it doesn't matter to me. And that's what I said, because it's just this assembly line. Jesus isn't like that. He knows us. He knows our natures. He knows our names. He knows our distinctive characteristics. And look how different each of his disciples were. Peter was impulsive. John was compassionate. Thomas was hesitant. Andrew was very social and people-oriented. Uh, Judas kept to himself and was selfish. 
yet Jesus knew how to deal with each and every one of them. In the 23rd Psalm, the shepherd's psalm, it tells us that the shepherd cares for his sheep. He meets their needs in the pasture. He meets their needs by the waters. He meets their needs up on the tables. You know, he prepares a table before me up on the mesas in the mountains for good grazing. And even in the darkest valleys of life, the shadow of death. And interestingly, if you connect Psalm 23, 1 with verse 6, 1 and verse 1 and verse 6, you get the main theme of David's shepherd song. If the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want all the days of my life. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And Jesus says, my sheep know me. And he's the good shepherd who desires to bring more into the sheepfold. Look at verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. As we shared last week, the fold was the people of Israel. As John 1.11 says, he came to that which was his own, and his own received him not. When Jesus sent out the twelve in Matthew 10, 5 and 6, he said, do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. In Matthew 15.24, when Jesus was checking out the faith of a Gentile woman, he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. At Pentecost, it was the Jews and the Jewish converts who first came to Christ. But the church wasn't to remain a Jewish flock. Peter took the gospel to the Gentiles, <coughs> excuse me, in Acts chapter 10 and chapter 11. And Paul went on to become an apostle to the Gentiles. If you want to read about that, read Acts 18, 1 through 6. In fact, he got so frustrated with trying to reach the Jews, he shook the dust off uh, his garments and he went to the Gentiles from that point on. Read Ephesians 2, 11 and 13, 11, 12 and 13, as well as Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 to get a picture of what is happening here. The church was to become one unit under one shepherd, that's Jesus. And then verses 17 and 18. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Now there are two important aspects of Jesus' death that are clarified by his authority over his death on the cross and of course his subsequent resurrection. The first is this, that his death was completely voluntary. No one could have touched him or laid a hand on him had he not permitted it. You know, there are over half a dozen recorded incidents in the Gospels where Jesus escaped from those who wanted to kill him because it was not yet the right time for him to be crucified. But then we come to John 12, 23, and Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And the second aspect of his authority was his ability to lay down his life voluntarily, but then be able to take it back up. See, it wasn't merely his ascent to be killed. It was to submit to death and then to emerge victorious, to emerge alive. And many people throughout history have laid down their life for someone else. A number of years ago, one, on one Memorial Day weekend, a Christian dentist out west in the, in the Pacific Northwest named Dr. James Reddick was teaching his 12-year-old daughter and 11-year-old son the joys of mountain hiking. 
when a sudden storm came up, battering them with hurricane-force winds and wet sheets of snow. A blinding whiteout made it impossible for them to see or to navigate on the steep slopes. They couldn't get down off the mountain. So Dr. Reddick laboriously dug an oblong trench with an aluminum mess kit then tucked his children into their sleeping bags away from the entrance. He covered the opening with a tarp, but the wind kept blowing it up and exposing the trench to the swirling winds and snow outside. So Reddick found that he had to lay across the bottom of the tarp, the opening and on the tarp, to keep it from blowing around. His own body weight kept the tarp down, protecting his two children from the howling elements outside the shelter. Well, two days passed before searchers finally found the hikers. Having noticed the corner of a backpack protruding from the deep snow, they rushed to the site, hoping that they would find in the snow-covered mound uh, the three missing hikers. Inside, they found Sean and David Reddick very much alive. But they also found the stiff body of their father as he laid against the tarped wall of the snow cave. One searcher said he had taken the cold spot to save his own children. And that's what any good parent would do. It's what Jesus has done for us. But we, in those situations, are powerless to take our lives up again, to resume existence after such a sacrifice. Jesus wasn't powerless. Jesus wasn't the helpless victim of his opponents. He had complete control to become an instrument and the instrument of reconciliation. Well, the passage concludes here in verses 19 through 21, basically with a choice that everyone has to make. Here's what it says. The Jews who had heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, he's demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? And the choice is this. Is Jesus a madman? Or is Jesus who he said he is? You know, I chuckle at a lot of liberal theologians because they are so illogical and they are so inconsistent. They want to believe in Jesus as a good teacher, a good man, a good example for everybody to follow, but they do not want to believe in a supernatural Jesus. They don't want to believe in miracles, like the miracles of creation, or the flood where the Israelites crossed the Red Sea between parted waters. One seminary professor told us that liberal theologians try to explain that by saying, well, they just crossed through the marsh in four inches of water. And my professor said, that's an even greater miracle that God drowned the armies of Egypt and their chariots in four inches of water. But they want to always try to explain everything away. They don't believe in the feeding of the 5,000. They want to argue that what Jesus did was talk everybody into sharing their lunches. That was the miracle of feeding the 5,000. Everybody shared their lunches, so everybody had something to eat. They don't believe that he restored sight to the blind or that he raised people from the dead. Folks, there's no middle ground here. Jesus is either the greatest fraud ever perpetrated on humanity or he is the son of God. You see, Jesus puts people on the horns of a dilemma in our modern world just as he's done throughout history. He's either God, I am, or he's a madman. There's no halfway point here. 
There's no halfway house we get to stop at. Objective truth is more than any one person's subjective feelings or desires. Whatever we think or feel or desire does not make God who he is. God is God. I am who I am. So each of us have to decide. Each of us have a decision to make. None of us gets to sit this one out. So with that in mind, let me ask you, what about you? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he God? Is he your shepherd? My shepherd? Is he your good shepherd? Is he your savior and your Lord? I hope so and pray so for your own well-being in the here and now and for eternity. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father, as we again continue in this remarkable biblical undertaking of looking at the names of Jesus, these self-descriptive accounts of who Jesus is, I am, we are reminded of the great statement of the Godhead, I am who I am. This is my name forever. And Lord, today, as we consider that Jesus is the good shepherd, I am the good shepherd, it speaks of his care, of his love. With all the chaos and craziness in the world, the shepherd doesn't flee because he's the one who's paid the price for the sheep. He's, he's there for the long haul. And God, we thank you for that today. We need that comfort. We need that encouragement. We need to know of the great love that you have for us. And God, it's in that love and peace that we want to live, that contentment of being one of your sheep, being, follow, being followers of you and being led by you. And it's to that end we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.